0: I think every one of us, uh, regardless of our background or, or uh, how we were raised, what kind of family we had, we have to answer some questions eventually. And one of the questions is, am I worthwhile? Do I matter? And if I matter, how do I know? I mean, what, what's the standard by which I can tell if I matter or not, whether I have self-worth? There's a guy who wrote a book called The Search for Significance. His name was Robert McGee. Great book, by the way. He says that there are essentially... Four wrong ways in which people try to attain their own self-worth. Some people try to think of themselves as important or they try to place a value of worth upon themselves uh, through performance. They think, if I can just do enough, if I can achieve enough, if I can be the best in my craft, if I can uh, accomplish more than the next guy, then maybe I will uh, be somehow more worthy than him. Somehow I can be... um, significant in this life this is the performance trap and people believe they have to meet certain standards in order to feel good about themselves really on the inside what they fear is failure there's a guy that Jesus uh, encountered or that he talked about actually in a parable who feared failure This guy had a talent that he was given, and we read about what Jesus uh, said about this man in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 and following. And I'll read this, and some of the scriptures will be be up here on the screen, so you don't have to flip around in your Bible, because we will encounter a lot of different scriptures today. But in this parable, Jesus said, It is just like a man who is about to go on a journey, and he called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. A talent back then was an amount of money. And so he gave these slaves these talents to do something with. Verse 16 says, Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But... He who received the one talent went away. He dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. We're going to skip down to his settling of the account with this one man who hid his talent in the ground, the man who feared failure. Verse 24, Jesus said, And the one who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I know you to be a hard man, reaping for you did not sow, and gathering for you scattered no seed. And I was afraid, and I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap for I did not sow, and gather for I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. Some people fear failure, and they think that they can only gain self-worth through their performance. Other people, Dr. McGee says, try to attain self-worth through approval. They're approval addicts. They fear rejection from others. There was a man in the Bible that feared rejection from others. The man was Pilate. In Mark chapter 15, in verse 12, Jesus is standing trial before Pilate. Jesus is about to be sentenced to death. And Pilate has Jesus' life in his hands. Pilate is the one with the authority who can decide whether Jesus should be released or a criminal or really an insurrectionist. And... Pilate, we read about in Mark chapter 15, verse 12. It says, answering again, Pilate said to the crowd, then what shall I do with him whom you call King of the Jews? He's talking about Jesus. They shouted back, crucify him. But Pilate said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. And then verse 15, it's very telling. It says, wishing to satisfy the crowd Pilate released Bar- uh, Barabbas for them and after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Pilate cared what others thought. He cared about what the crowd thought, not about what was right or what was wrong. He tried to gain self-worth in the crowd's eyes through their approval by doing what they wanted him to do. Some other people tried to g- gain self-worth through blaming others. Have you ever met someone like that? That they feel so insecure about themselves, they cast blame upon other people to bring them down in order to make themselves feel better. They play the blame game, and they believe that, that if they were to fail, they would be worthy of punishment, and so they blame others for their problems. It's not my fault, it's someone else's fault. Someone else made me this way. You know, the blame game is as old as history itself. You can go all the way back to Genesis and Adam, and we're going to read about this in just a minute, but Adam was the very first person who played the blame game. And he said to God, when God asked him, why did you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And I told you not to. Adam said, the woman that you gave me She gave me of the fruit of the tree and I ate. Adam was pretty good at the blame game. Not only did he blame the woman for his own actions, but he actually blamed God. I didn't ask for a woman. You just gave her to me. And so he's really blaming God for his own sin. Some people try to gain self-worth by blaming others. And finally, some try to gain self-worth through shame somehow dealing with their shame. They're ashamed of the past. They're ashamed by what they've done in the past. And they believe that their lot in life is somehow hopeless. Jesus encountered a a woman in John chapter 8 who was caught in the very act of adultery. And she was dragged out in front of the crowd and in front of Jesus. And we read about this in John chapter 8 verse 3. It says the scribes and the Pharisees, these were the, the teachers of the law, They brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery, in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground, But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out, one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone with the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. This was a woman who the rest of her life, and it seemed like it would be a very short rest of her life if they were to carry out the stoning, she would have to live with the shame of this mistake of this sin of this error and judgment that she made but jesus lifted her up out of this shame he wasn't going to have her live the rest of her life basing her self-worth on some action that she did in the past you know all of these ways in which we try to attain or evaluate our own self-worth they're based on false beliefs and if you believe the wrong thing you're going to view yourself the wrong way and even behave the wrong way and when we, try to, when we try to attain self-worth the wrong way, we actually look in the wrong places. For example, sometimes there might be a, a young man who is seeking to determine if he's worthwhile in life. He's asking these questions, do I matter in this life? And this young man might, in this hypothetical situation, meet a, a young lady, and she's seeking to answer the same questions. And so they try to meet their need for affirmation, uh, through their relationship to one another. And so the young woman gives the young man the respect and the adoration that he desires. And while he gives her the love and the affection that, that she wants. They may, may even enter into marriage. Hoping to find their own self-worth in the other person. Only be, to be disappointed when their expectations remain unmet. You know, on the, on, you go on Amazon.com and you look up books for self-esteem you'll find that there's over 70,000 books that are written on self-esteem. Why are there so many? Why is there such a big market for this? Because the need to be significant is the driving element within the human spirit. And yet most of these books try to understand or attempt to change the behavior of someone who's meeting their, trying to meet their needs in the wrong way without... Truly understanding the driving cause that creates that misbehavior. Many people spend a lifetime searching for love, searching for acceptance, searching for success, and they never find the answer. But Scripture gives us the answer. The Bible tells us what the answer is to our search for significance. Our Creator knows about our innermost needs more than any human can. He's the one who created us. He's the one who cares for us more than any other human and he has given us his word on the subject and this is where we turn to Genesis chapter 1. It's a passage that we actually read last week as well but it's significant to us because it teaches us a very important lesson. Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 27, the very first chapter of the Bible, God after uh, five, five days on the sixth day he creates man and here's what we read. In just a minute, we're going to uh, run into a problem, and I want us to go ahead and read the passage of Scripture that describes this problem that enters. And it's in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. God had created the man and the woman, put them there in the garden, gave them uh, the ability to have complete dominion over the earth, especially over the garden. They could eat of anything except for one tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, this tree, I do not want you to eat of it. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And so in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, we read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. God never said they couldn't touch it. Eve added that in. Already she's on the wrong path. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. In these two passages of scripture, we have two pictures of humanity in the first passage, we have humanity in the very beginning, and that's what we're going to talk about, how God made humanity to be. In the very beginning, God made the man and the woman perfect. Humanity in the very beginning was perfect. There were, man was secure and free. He, he knew who he was because he was intimately related to God. There was no barrier between a man and his creator. He was made in God's image. He was designed to reign over the earth as God's royal representative. Everything was perfect, just as God had planned. And man's purpose was to reflect the very glory of God, to reflect His holiness. Psalm 99, verses 3 through 5 says, Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is He. The strength of the King loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Man was created to reflect God's holiness. Man was created to reflect God's love. In 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4, we read love is patient. Love is kind. This comes from God. God is patient. God is kind. And we are to reflect that. We are to reflect God's wisdom. James 3.17 says, But the wisdom from above, that's from God, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. That should be the character of our own lives. We're to reflect God's comfort. God is a comforting God. He's not uh, just a, a wrathful, vengeful God, distant off in the heavens, that smites people every time they do something wrong, but he's one that is with us and he's intimate with us, he's comforting to us during our times of trouble. He is holy, he is wrathful, he is uh, the judge over all, but he grants us comfort when we need it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses three and four, we read, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You get the picture? God comforts us so that we can comfort others during their affliction. We're to reflect God's faithfulness. In Psalm 89, we read, I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I've said, loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens you will be established. You will establish your faithfulness. We are to reflect God's grace. The psalmist said, He has made his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. And so this is God, who is gracious, who is loving, who is forgiving, who is compassionate, who is comforting. This is who God is. And God made humans. To reflect that even then in Genesis chapter 1 Genesis chapter 2 even in the perfection of that early those early days before sin ever entered the world man still had a need he had a need for companionship a need that was unmet until God created the woman and so God met man's need for companionship by giving him a wife and Genesis chapter 2 verse 16 We read the Lord God, or verse 18, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so God gave us one another. God gave us a, a spouse if we are indeed married. Your spouse is not designed to give you meaning and purpose in life, though. Your meaning and your purpose in life is to be given to you by your relationship with God. Your spouse will never be able to give you self-worth. Your spouse is designed To give you companionship. Because that's what marriage is. It is a lifelong covenant of companionship between one man and one woman. And so when we look for our self-worth, we need to look beyond our friends. We need to look beyond our job, beyond the salary that we make. We need to look beyond our kids. Because our kids cannot give us self-worth. We need to look beyond even our spouse. The closest relationship we'll ever have with anyone this side of heaven. We need to look to our creator himself because only he can give us the self-worth that we so desperately need in our search for significance. And so in the very beginning, you had a perfect picture of humanity. Humanity was perfect. There was nothing wrong. But then sin entered the story, and we read that in Genesis chapter 3. We know that Satan wanted to be the authority on the earth. He wanted to be king. He wanted to be the one calling the shots. He wanted man to listen to him instead of listen to God. And so to accomplish his goal, he deceived Eve. Eve listened to Satan and believed that eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would make her wiser. She was convinced by Satan that she would become like God. And so she was deceived. Here's the interesting thing. Adam was not deceived. Scripture says that Eve was deceived. Adam was not deceived. He deliberately chose to forsake God's way. God's way was revealed directly to him in Genesis chapter 2. God was speaking to Adam when God said, Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. God said to Adam these words, And so when Eve took of the fruit and ate, she was being deceived by the serpent, but when she handed the fruit to Adam, he made a deliberate choice. He knew better. He was not deceived. He chose to forsake God's way. He chose knowingly to follow Eve into sin. Adam forfeited his close communion and his fellowship with God. Man had been given rulership over the earth as God's royal representative, but instead, what did did man do? Instead of bowing his knee to God, man bowed his knee to Satan through Adam's actions. And by doing this, he became a slave to Satan. He aided Satan's purpose. He gave Satan authority and power over him. God had said to Adam, you are my image bearer. It's as if God had said to Adam, you are my companion ruler. You are the one who represents me on this earth. You are the royal representative that has dominion over all of the earth. And you, Adam, are the reflection of my glory. But Satan distorted the message and said to Adam, you know what? You're actually something other than that. You're something different than that. You're something more than that. You're more significant than what God said you are. Eat the fruit and find out. And Adam ate the fruit and he found out that Satan was lying and that all the while when God said, you are my image bearer, you are my royal representative on the earth having dominion over the whole the whole earth and that should be significant enough for you he found out that god was telling the truth but he blew it and as a result all of his children that's us we all suffer the consequences of it because adam chose to listen to satan rather than god humanity became insecure as adam's children we've inherited his insecurities You know, you meet someone who's insecure, guess what? That person might very well be a reflection of you because we all share in Adam's insecurities. Out of our insecurities, out of our lack of significance, out of our search for self-worth, there comes feelings of arrogance and inadequacy and despair. And because we're insecure about ourselves, insecure about what God says we are, And we don't really believe what God says we are. We think we're something different than that, more than that, or less than that. We value the opinions of others more than the truth of God. We care so much about what other people think. I want you to think about that logically. If we place all of our self-worth in what other people say about us, what kind of sense is that? Because their perspective is as limited and darkened as ours is. They're looking to us for self-worth. And so here we have a bunch of blind, silly people all trying to find self-worth in each other's opinions of each other. Instead, God says, listen to what I've said about you. I say you're valuable. I say you're made in my image. I say that you are my royal representatives on this earth. And I might remind you that Scripture promises in the very end of the Bible that we will reign with Christ forever and ever. God made us to be kings and queens, not less than that. Satan's original lie is very much alive today. He's told Eve, you're more than what God says. This is the lie of secular humanism. You know, secular humanism is the central philosophy of our schools today. Our schools have adopted it as the truth. It teaches that humans are above all else, that mankind is the center of all meaning. There's no room for God in secular humanism. Morality is whatever you say it is. Good and bad is whatever you say it is. It's become such a point now that that even your sexuality is whatever you think it is secular humanism at its finest humanity is to be celebrated secular humanism says humanity should be worshipped secular humanism says it says that man is constantly evolving becoming more and more enlightened we're going to become so enlightened we won't even know that we're alive we won't know that there's any difference between us and a rabbit or us and any other part of creation or us than a robot for that matter all of this so-called enlightenment it's led to a daily occurrence of crimes and perversions that at one time only occurred in the minds of writers of fiction but you see when we live without the very truth of god humanity sinks lower and lower into depravity In Romans chapter 1, we read about this kind of depravity that man sinks into. It says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they, that's us, are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I want to tell you what Satan says. About your self-worth. Your self-worth is its simple addition. I hate to take you back to math class. It's been a long time for some of us, but this is simple addition. Self-worth, Satan says, equals your performance plus the opinions of others. How well you perform at your job, at your marriage, at your child raising, or whatever it is, how well you perform You take that and you add what other people think of you. Satan says that equals how you should look at yourself. Your self-worth. And it's a lie. You see, all of us have a strong need for love and acceptance. The problem comes when we go to the wrong source to try to meet those needs. Some people go to any extreme to be loved and to be accepted. Some people become compulsive. So they work extra hours, they put extra effort in, they try to say just the right thing so that they can be successful and they can gain the approval of others. Some people try to control every single situation as a sign of insecurity. Some people show their insecurities by withdrawing. They, They try to avoid failure and they try to avoid disapproval by avoiding risks. They take careers where there's a low chance of failure. They avoid relationships that would make them vulnerable. But listen, Scripture says that our value is established in Jesus Christ. It's not by our performance. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. How are you going to get to heaven? I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to do this, or I'm going to avoid doing that, and by my own efforts, I'm going to get myself to heaven. First of all, you won't be able to. You're not good enough. But beyond that, Jesus Christ has provided a way through the cross. And when we receive Him as our Lord and Savior, His perfect righteousness becomes ours. And that's how we're saved, through faith. Not that of ourselves, it's God's gift. Not a result of our own doing, so that no one may boast. Some people seek the approval of others, but Scripture says in Galatians 1, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I wouldn't be a bondservant of Christ. Paul wrote these words as when he was in prison for being a Christian. And Paul said, do you think I'm really trying to seek men's approval? If I was seeking men's approval, I wouldn't be in this prison. But I'm not seeking men's approval, I'm seeking God's. Paul also wrote in 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth, the very word of God. Some people blame others for all of their problems. In John chapter 21, after Jesus was raised from the grave, he appeared to numerous people. On one occasion, he appeared to his disciples there by the Sea of Galilee. And he was walking with Peter along the, along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And we read in John chapter 21, beginning in verse 20, Peter turned around and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. He saw John. That's how John describes himself. Peter turned around and he saw John. John was following them. The one who had also leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord... Who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing this, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? What are we going to do about John? You and I are trying to have a conversation, but John's following us. Jesus said to him, If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Don't worry about what other people do. Don't worry about what other people think. John has his own path to follow. You need to be concerned about yours. You follow me, Jesus said. Some people try to deal with their shame. Have a hard time they overcome that have a hard time overcoming their shame. Live their entire lives ashamed of something they did in the past. Something that happened to them, something that some action that they perhaps chose. Whatever it is, something that brought them shame that can't ever overcome it. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for David. There is therefore no condemnation for you you put your name in there There there's no condemnation for me and of God in heaven who knows everything about you he knows the secrets that nobody knows but you he knows the things that you're going to take to your grave that you're not going to ever tell a soul about he knows everything that has happened to you He knows the motivations of the people that have hurt you. He knows your own motivations when you've messed up and when you've done well. And if God, who knows everything, has this evaluation of you, for he says, I don't condemn you. If you're in Christ Jesus, that means if you're a follower of Jesus, I don't condemn you. If God says that, who cares what the person who has no knowledge says about you? Who cares about that little, petty, vindictive person that wants to hurt you, says about you? Who cares what they say about you? The God of the universe has declared you are accepted. You are worthwhile. You are valuable. So valuable. You're so valuable. I love you so much, God says, that I sent my son to become like you. I gave him a body, I put him on this earth, and I let him live with all of the problems of humanity. And he suffered and he got hungry and he got thirsty. And he bled and he died on a cross paying for your sins. And I raised him from the grave. And I elevated him to the position of Lord over all. And I did it for you. I want you to be a part of it. I want you to follow him. And I think God would say to those of us who have followed him, I want you to stop with this nonsense of trying to be worthwhile in the eyes of others or through your own performance. I love you. Period. Accept it and believe it. And that's all you need.